Welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. It's a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how you doing? I'm doing well. I just want to tell listeners that I asked Bradley to redo the intro just now because he he, he tried out this voice, and I, I don't, I've don't i never yeah. heard you actually use no, that. it's not like my radio voice. No, it was your kind of like smooth jazz yeah, voice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, right. you, oh, I guess you're right. Okay, so you missed the smooth jazz voice. Maybe I'll let him keep that in next time, the smooth jazz voice. There was I went to a bar mitzvah yesterday, and the grandfather of the it was twins the twins being bar mitzvahed um had like a career in radio and then he read like the prayer for israel or something like that like man it was awesome it was really? like this guy's got I already forgot his name but like he was like on npr for years you know it's like he has a radio voice like i have never heard someone not jewish by the way but someone <laughs> never heard someone get up there and do it like this sounds phenomenal it's good it's a talent it's a gift um so tell us, why don't you explain what we're yeah. going to do, and then I want to ask you a personal question. But sure. st start with start so with. Um, the first thing is I'm, I'm going to, which you hate when I do this, but I'm, I'm going to read something that I wrote the other day, uh, and we're going to talk about it. And it's, it's against just, the rules, but Bradley does it anyway. Yes. Yeah. Um, reading something that is. Well, because the thing is, oftentimes, as I start to develop a, a thesis on something, it helps me understand it if I write it down. Right. Um, and then I think in this case, you know, capture it well enough that that it's worth okay. reading. then uh, i think we're just going to do a lightning round there's all kinds of different stuff going on whether it's uh politics nationally new york business stuff we have a lot of different stuff, things to talk about yeah. media so i i think we're Sopranos just kind of 25th anniversary yes, right we're gonna so touch I, on that. yeah so we're just gonna the, how hard it is to find a good hitman so like we're just gonna sort of just mow through tons of topics should be a fun interview okay so um just before uh, we get to your well-crafted theory of why the world sucks right now, um, I want to ask you about uh, the Manjaro. So sure. tell, uh, tell, just uh, give listeners an update. First of all, some background for those who haven't listened to a, yeah. uh, the prior episode where we talked about it a little bit. What, what's going on? So I've taken three shots now. Okay, Manjaro. Um, what is Manjaro? Manjaro is a GLP-1, which is a type... <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not choking. Um <laughs> type of drug like Wegovy or um, Ozempic uh, that uh, helps, is d developed to help people with type 2 diabetes um, control uh, their behavior, control their eating, control their weight. And then what it turned out is that it had all of these ancillary benefits way beyond simply helping diabetics. Um, I'm on, what I'm doing is still very much an open experiment, which is they found that it really helps people deal with addiction, right? So drugs, alcohol, gambling, whatever it is. Um, I have OCD, as I've talked about on this podcast many times. Um, and there's at least some thought that compulsive thinking might be another area uh, where there is um, potentially some benefit. No one really knows, uh, but my psychiatrist and the endocrinologist I met with were both like, not a lot of downside to giving it a shot. Um, so that's what I'm doing. I'm literally giving myself a shot every Wednesday. So you have like loaded syringes in yeah, your house. Yeah. Okay. In fact, it's not even a syringe. It's, it's, it's like this thing that you just kind of put up against your stomach and like you barely feel it. You press a button. It's, it's and so the less needle than like a pops print. out basically. Yeah. I mean, it's less than even like a print pin prick when they take blood from your finger. Okay. It's nothing. Um, uh, certainly if for whatever reason to do it or not do it. Don't not do it because you think it's going to be too painful. It is not painful right. at all. And no real needle scare. No. Okay. Now, now, it's going to take, I think, a few months from what they both said um, for me to really notice whether it's working, in, in part because um, 
when you we talked this last time, when you ask yourself the question of, am I thinking compulsively about thinking compulsively? Am I thinking compulsively? Then you end up thinking compulsively about thinking compulsively. Yes, that right? sounds like a cul-de-sac. Yeah, so it's it's hard to get out of that mindset. And I was talking to Dr. Noel Taylor, my psychiatrist, the other day, and what she was saying is, look, you're going to realize it like in a moment of totally unrelated word, like you're doing completely something else, and you're just going to you oh. I haven't been thinking compulsively lately for right. a while. So you're going to have to just let it yeah, sit for a yeah, while. Which yeah, which means um, give it a few months. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still only Wednesday. It'll be week three, uh, third, three full weeks of it. So I'm, I'm still pretty early on in the process. But what I'm also finding is um, the psychological impact. So maybe I don't know if there's anything yet on compulsive thinking, but I feel like a little more moderation in general. Well, one is that I'm just never hungry, um, and I don't need to necessarily lose weight in the first place, so it's not in good. In fact, you do not need to lose right. weight. Right, so it's, it's not good for me to not eat, um, but at the same time, I am finding that uh, I'm not sure if food doesn't taste as good or um, if I am just sort of like mentally so in a different place right now. Um, I do think that I am Are you eating, like skipping meals and stuff or like just yeah, not but, eating as much when you do eat? Well, both. So, you know, I'm definitely eating smaller portions, which is good, right? It's so like yesterday, Lyle and I ordered a chicken cutlet sandwiches for lunch. And I had, instead of have devouring the whole thing, I had like one and a half of the two halves, you know? Right. Um, so I think that part is pretty good. But I think... Right. Just, so you're totally eating, but just I not mean, Yeah, not yeah. I just have to remember to do it. Um, and then, but the broader thing is just... I do think there's a little bit of a sense of calm, whether it's psychosomatic or or not, that's produced by it. Um, And just a little more moderation. Like, I feel like my life has been sort of this, like, you know, race to the finish at all times. And, you know, it's been interesting and and successful in some ways. But, um, you know, I'm 50 and I think I'd like to still, I think, I think I now know how to do the things that I care about that matter without necessarily having to devote as much anxiety to it. Um, and so I'd like to learn how to do it. I think this may be helping with that. Um, now, of course, again, when you're, whether it's medical or psychosomatic, I don't know, but it doesn't really make a difference. If it's doing it, it's sort of the same thing anyway. Of course, right. So, you know, um, again, we're, we're pretty early on in, but I, I do think that there's sort of a moderating impact. You're feeling something. You're not sure exactly what it yeah. is but it's but it's definitely having an effect yeah or so so it's it's right. it's definitely interesting okay we will be checking back on that in subsequent yeah i mean episodes. i'm really like conducting a physical experiment yeah. on myself here right so right like, i'm going to start describing what you uh what you look like um just to sort of keep keep track well, of I also your had physique food poisoning though so when i was in japan I, was, I know i, I know I let's not talk anymore about horse. that the horse sashimi yeah, so, i'm already over that so that's that's yeah. already a deficit. okay um <laughs> So this is what I wrote to you on Saturday. Yes. So I you was, know I get these really. This this came via text, and it was quite. And then you and then you redid it and sent it twice via text. So I got these gigantic texts from you, but they were interesting. They were interesting. Okay. But um, I'm glad to hear it. So you, um, did you revise again, or are you uh, reading me uh, the second version? Uh, mainly the second version, probably a little more revision. All right, off you go. So uh, I've been wondering today about this. As you see in the war in Israel, now tubing Biden on multiple fronts, opposition from the far left for Israel itself, as well as the Houthi attacks, raising shipping costs to the point where inflation is up and very well may remain that way. It seems like the world is totally interconnected in its chaos and problems. It makes the 1990s seem amazing in that we didn't have endless global conflict. We had some regional conflict. The Cold War was over. You had Russia trying out capitalism. China was modernizing, but not yet being aggressive against other countries. Globalization has not taken enough effect yet to make someone like Trump possible in the U.S. 
Um, and it says maybe on the other side, it did help produce Modi in India, but I'm not, don't know enough about India to know for sure. Um, ideas like NAFTA gave countries incentives to try to get along, and now it's all a disaster. So what has changed? The internet for sure, which has enabled a lot of political unrest everywhere, enabled demagogues, enabled terrorist groups like ISIS, and also made the feeling of what people lack more extreme than ever. Climate change has started to create a more scarcity mindset rather than all countries working towards a common goal, which is why most of the climate stuff has been ineffective. And it's probably going to take an existing migrant crisis, so South and Central America to the U.S., Africa and the Middle East to Europe, and make it far worse. Political authoritarianism is way up from Putin to Trump to Xi to Modi to Brexit to Bibi to Erdogan to Bolsonaro, um, possibly the result of a lot of what we saw as progress in the 1990s, so free trade, globalization, creation of the Internet. Um, corruption may be easier for leaders thanks to crypto, which further encourages bad behavior, and also international, international criminal syndicates are more power than ever, the cartels, but also state-sanctioned organized crime. And across almost all countries and sectors, there's been a continued diminution in trust in institutions. So a lot of traditional moral authorities, higher ed, the media, uh, religion, have lost their credibility in large part from their own doing, but in part also thanks to the internet. So the world is not only fucked in ways that it wasn't 25 years ago, it seems like some of what was good about 25 years ago perhaps resulted in some of the problems that we now have today. So what could change that? Maybe this is where AI offers hope that we haven't identified it with yet. Maybe the ability to grow, to solve so many problems, to increase health and longevity, to create so much new wealth, to increase standards of living, all help recreate some of the conditions and mentality of the 1990s in terms of political climate, in terms of the types of leaders we choose, in terms of how we power and incentivize them and democratize more institutions. Um, and also through things like mobile voting, which isn't AI, but is advanced technology. And maybe that brings a normative change in behavior globally. Or maybe AI just exacerbates the haves and have-nots, and everything we're experiencing now only grows worse. This is where AI regulation is really important. Right now, it's seen as mainly minimizing potential harms, like the EU regulations or even some of what China is doing. That may be the right intellectual framework, but maybe we should be thinking more about AI as the possible solution to our, glo to our global problems, and not just new products and services created and sold by the private sector which means thinking about how we incentivize and encourage the development of the right kinds of AI, areas like drug formation, education, decarbonization. I don't think that's been the leader of mindset, mindset of leaders yet, but maybe it should be. And then the last point, Hugo, that I added and you don't have in front of you is uh, I was listening to Sam Harris's one of his podcasts over the weekend, and he wasn't talking about exactly the same context that I was just now, but he was talking about sort of the distribution of AI rewards, right? Like I think he would agree that AI is going to have this incredibly profound impact on both society and the economy. And his point is, rather than having six trillionaires from Google who figured something out, how do we ensure that those benefits economically uh, accrue to society as a whole? Um, and so that that's something from a regulatory standpoint. There's the how do we incentivize the creation of good things? How do we prevent the creation of bad things? But then also, how do we take the spoils of what comes from this um, and distribute them in a way that lifts up society overall and doesn't just exacerbate where we are. So in that view, do you think that the the kind of existential fears are I mean, I know I know you think they're sort of overblown in a sense or have been by some by some about people. AI? Yeah, like AI is gonna destroy the world kind of stuff. They're gonna I mean, take I don't over know. The I mean, if, you know, is is there a world where the AI becomes so intelligent that it somehow gets to a point where it 
identifies itself versus the humans and because it controls the grid and the internet and the nuclear codes and everything else. But how is it going to do that? I still don't understand. I, I don't know either. <laughs> but like, do I think that's going to happen? Probably not. I do think that there is enough. We know very little, right? right? So what we need to do is one, I think what is being done, which is a framework to try to identify what we can today is the potential greatest harms and how do we minimize those. But two would be, you know, where can AI, right now there's a global mindset of sort of depression, hopelessness, fear, right? right? And that results in political authoritarianism. It results in the internet being a terrible fucking place. Um, it results in all kinds of problems. And I think that there was this moment in the 90s at least that there was sort of a feeling of global hope and potential, right? You know, the U.S. certainly was probably at its, its peak maybe in that point. Um, but but also around the world, there was cooperation on trade, on ending the Cold War, on democratization, on bringing capitalism to Russia and places like that. Um, and, and, you know, look, that was notably pre-internet. And but, it really was the moving together of U.S. and China. I mean, that was the big development yeah, of the 1990s right. for sure. Right. And, um, and we, we, we have the opposite now. So I'm just wondering, is there anything that can make the world feel less bad and I do think that AI may be the one sort of existential shift that potentially could do it if we get it right. It's interesting because I it, like like what I like about this is it it first of all there it looks at a um, it, it frames the AI issue in a, in, an in a new way, which you know I, I think you can simplify a lot of things about AI if you just think of it as automation, right? Mm -hmm. So so and we you know the economy's been automating. I mean since yeah, <laughs> since the, the beginning of time, since, right? Yeah, since, long since, before. But, since but the typewriter. Yeah. Um, and and what what that typically does, right, is it creates a lot of sort of turbulence, uh, typically on the lower end of the economy. So you know there's cobblers are replaced by shoe factories, and then the shoe factories have built in more machines, and then the machines are moved to China, and then suddenly you know there's there's no more like nobody's making shoes anymore in the United States, and that like you know destroys a whole life like that existed before, and that. You know the the people running the companies don't notice any difference at all. If in fact they make far greater money than they ever did, how do you think the sort of trajectory of AI will be different than that? Like it, because it, yeah. it really is the same thing. It's like taking labor that exists at some level and you, you're not destroying it necessarily, but you're devaluing it significantly. Yeah, I mean the question is that's why sort of how you capture the wealth produced by it is really important, right? Because Maybe AI should be tied to universal basic income. You know, AI and UBI should go together, mm -hmm. which is um, if the means of production are going to be synthesized to the point where you just don't need much in the way of human beings, um, you still have to have a way for people to make a living and support themselves. And so, you know, there's going to be, you know, every time there's a major technological breakthrough, a lot more wealth is created through the innovation. And the question becomes, well, what do we do with that? Well, so it seems like we can do two things. One would be, um, how do we figure out a redistribution um, that is societally net positive beyond just a small group of people? Now, I would argue, having spent a lot of time in government doing things like putting budgets together and negotiating them and then implementing them, something like UBI, which is just a guaranteed money transfer as opposed to putting it through the hands of politicians who will fuck it all up, um, is definitely the better way to go about it. But that's one piece of it. The other would be, what are the types of AI that we can say, these can meaningfully make our lives better, right? So, you know, we started this podcast talking about Manjaro, and you know, GLP-1 wasn't created necessarily by, by AI, 
But imagine that you know they've now come up with this drug that feels like a miracle that seems to have more and more and more benefits. Um, and especially if, if, if you could start doing testing in simulated ways rather than clinical trials always being on, on people, um, you could arguably use AI to take every conceivable compound and formula possible um, and test them out and see what we can develop, right? Because every single drug that gets developed, we couldn't do it until we did, right? Every single time. And so um, human longevity and health and all of that, um, education, right? Uh, you know, one of the challenges that I think teachers have is, you know, whether you have 18 kids in your classroom or 36, there's 18 or 36 different learning styles and, and none are inherently more valid than others. But some people learn best by reading, some by hearing, some by seeing, right? Some by writing. I learn by writing. Um, and the teacher's trying to find effectively the lowest common denominator that can kind of reach the most number of students at the same time. And that's sort of a almost failed formula to begin with, right? Because you're just shooting for sort of the, the, the most basic thing that could potentially work and resonate. And if you ultimately had the ability to sort of enhance what teachers are doing with chatbots, whatever else, let's say, okay, Hugo, I'm going to present the material to you in this way and to Bradley in this way. And the goal is to teach them the same quadratic formula, um, but the ways that they're going to learn it are radically different. So let's let's make it work for them. Um, that could exponentially improve education. And it could also do things like potentially help people really figure out here's what their interest and talent is. And here's what the right career is, which might mean studying liberal arts at a four year college or it might be something more vocational or, or something else. Um, the third will be you know, decarbonization. It, now, it's tricky, right, because arguably you need so much fuel to power AI itself that maybe it will end up being much more of a net harm than, than anything else. But at the same time, you know, we've talked a lot in this podcast about, you know, carbon capture. There are some rudimentary attempts at it right now. They're pretty early days, um, but perhaps you could use AI to figure out. Um, look, I don't know if you remember this. I mean, maybe you weren't even doing the podcast back then. We had a guest on once who had a startup where her, she was able to like grow trees that could absorb more carbon dioxide. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I was around for that. Wasn't okay. it? I thought she, was she not a client? No. Also? No, no. Just someone you'd uh, yeah, just someone come across. Yeah. Um, I remember her. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't even know how that's doing. But we like, che- well, we're going to we check, check back by, by next. Right, but uh, like the idea was like, okay, if there are billions of trees in the world and you could make them all absorb thirty percent more carbon dioxide, that would suck a, a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. Maybe AI, I, you know, I don't, my guess is had she succeeded wildly, we would have heard something between now and then. I think, I think, I think we would have. But, yeah. but, but either way, you know, um, AI is probably a useful tool in developing that kind of stuff. So I think some of it is, is figuring out what societal benefits can be really gained through AI and not just sort of trying to prevent the downsides and the harms, but how do we actively incentivize this just like we did with the space race and the internet and so many other things. And then the second would be to understand that in our current system, of risk and reward and taxation and everything else, um, it is likely that the spoils go to relatively few people. Um, and look, I'm a capitalist, and and obviously I, I benefit from the you know inequality of, of the distribution of wealth tremendously. Um, but at the same time, if we're at a point where, like you said, where the means of production are synthesized to the point where most people don't have a job, um, unless you want to have a revolution, you're going to need to take care of people. So um, let's uh, let me ask you. Uh, we, 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 you're talking about AI in a very um, sort of big picture way. Um, I'm curious in both the uh, companies that uh, that are in your portfolio at mm-hmm. Tusk Strategies, in your teaching at Columbia, 
and in the just general management of your own yeah. various businesses. Where is AI having an effect that you can see? Yeah, in, in portfolio companies, it's test ventures, right? So, uh, you know, we're not investors in generative AI mm -hmm. because there's no particular expertise that we have there and it is so capital intensive that my $7 million check just doesn't mean anything, right? right? Um, but for example, I'll give you two, two companies we are in that use AI. So Elaborate Health is, uh, and Nicole uh, Prokofsky has been on this podcast We've had her before. on, yeah, she's great. Um, she just takes, and it's funny because I just did like all of this blood work and I got mm -hmm. the labs back from Quest, but I haven't talked to my doctor yet. And I, I found, this is also because I was in Japan with a jet lag and everything. I was reading medical journals to try to interpret, you know. You're not supposed to do this, brother. No, but of course I did it, right? <laughs> right? But what Elaborate does is it prevents you from having to do that by saying, okay, right. here in plain English and infographics, it's exactly what this means. So when right. you say 0.63 glucose, you're like, is that good or bad? Yeah. It's like, well, okay, here's here's where it's good, here's where it's bad. Um, and it really does. That's funny. I've, I've been doing all of this. You know, I read, we talked about this, Peter T's book last year mm -hmm. about longevity. Yeah, Sarah's reading it too, I think and, I mentioned. And I um, wrote down, as I was reading it, all of the different tests that he was saying that could help people gain information about their bodies, you know, sometimes even decades before you would otherwise that could allow you to identify potential problems and deal with it. So I'm undergoing lots of different types of scans and blood work and everything else. Um, and I even did a scan where I got back something that sort of looked for a second, like, oh, are they a client of Elaborate? Because it looked at first like this is actually recognizable. And it was like a lot of pages at first of like generally helpful info. And then it got to plaque and it was just like, you know, DMV 0.62. I don't know what the fuck that means, right? So like, it wasn't helpful. Right. So Nicole uses AI to, to yeah. make that work. Yeah, yeah. Or the contract network, uh, Jim Wagner's been on this yeah, podcast yeah, he's too. also another CEO. guest, yep. Um, they use AI to make it easier to create contracts. Like right now, we have to pay lawyers to do even usually the most basic contract work. But the reality is the vast majority of the times, the provisions are basically the same. The Maybe terms a are tweak basically the, the same. Plate, right? Yeah, and, and you don't necessarily need to pay someone all that money to drop a basic contract. So, you know, are there various bespoke things that are always going to require, you know, more human interaction? Sure, um, but a lot of it doesn't. So the contract network, as you're writing a contract, it shows you all the market comps, all the standard terms, all the deviations on it, everything else, um, and it ultimately makes contracting much less expensive. So, so those are startups directly involved, but in terms of just like, like even a more kind of like basic level, do you see stuff in the office? Do you have employees no, using I, it? I, or I you... don't think so. Although, uh -huh. you know, it's possible we use tools that, that use AI right. that I'm not even uh, aware of. Right. right? Um, but no, but you know, keep in mind, I'm in a service provision business at, at Touch Strategies. Um, and so, you know, that's still pretty um, automated. Now, look, the kind of um, communications is an area, though, where it, it will come into play. The kind of comms that we do tends to be much more high level and conceptual because it's taking something really complicated and figuring out the strategy to communicate it to different audiences and stakeholders in different ways. But when it's more basic comms work, like writing press releases and pitching and whatever else, people already have AI doing that. Yeah, um, sure. And it's still, look, it's funny, I don't know about you, I, I get people send me pitches and press releases to become guests on the podcast, right? And you can all, I almost like to like just quickly look at them to see if whether or not it was a human being or or AI uh, that sent it to me. Have you gotten this thing? I mean, this is so lame in, in a sense, but like I, I was like shopping online and I like, I guess I looked at something and then I actually get a text from like what sounds like a person like no. at the company. And they, they actually have a name attached to it, this one company in particular like, hey, this is Jeff, you know, or whoever it was, like, 
and it was obviously just AI like texting sell you, you, a coat. you just yeah. like I don't know you felt I felt kind of I don't know it, it felt a certain violation like yeah. here I am human shopping I was like maybe that was just my AI shopping maybe it wasn't me yeah um anyway uh do you have anything more you want to say no, about this I or should this we do our, just you know yeah. something that I'll I'll probably keep exploring yeah. as a concept and we'll keep talking no, about No I like it. it I think it's I think it's a good um it's a good little intro to that to that idea of 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 like AI is the, you know, is this kind of like real hope of our times set against like these it, other. It's potentially a reset. Yeah. Um, and we need one. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to ask you a bunch of uh, we're going to we're going we're to skip around. Um, the, the first one is football related. Have you been watching the, the NFL playoffs? at yeah. all? Yeah. I, I got to say, I've been completely sucked in. It's almost embarrassing how much football I've watched. I feel like a half a person. But... Although of the four games. The only one that was that so far was good was Detroit LA. I know, but I had to watch. I just enjoyed the 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 Cowboys getting there. Yeah, 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 so yeah. much. I, and also, also there did seem up until like maybe even the fourth quarter, you're like, uh, they, like they're going to come back, <laughs> Cowboys. Uh, I don't know. I, I had I had faith in their ability to screw to it screw up. Well, yeah. Good for you. So so there have been three huge uh, sort of coaching changes uh, involving like. Uh, three of the giants of, of of coaching. That's that's Bill Belichick, obviously Saban at at, at Alabama, and um, what's the guy at? Uh, You're thinking of Pete Carroll. I'm thinking of Pete Carroll. And the reason why Pete Carroll, because I think he doesn't feel like he's at the level, and he isn't of Bill Belichick and Nick Saban. But he did something that neither of them have done, which is he has won a, a national championship as a college coach yep, and the Super right. Bowl as that's an NFL right. coach. So they're both. They're all three of those guys are are in their seventies. Yep. And uh, they. I, when they all stepped down literally on the same day or stepped away from their job, Belichick, I think it's going to come back in, in another, with another team. Um, it, it created this big thing is a, are these guys uh, too old to sort of stay on top of all the things yeah. they need to do? And, and obviously that's a really interesting sort of thing in politics now with Trump and, and, and Biden both, uh, I mean, both almost both in their eighties, certainly uh, Biden is right. Um, do you think that, I guess I'm curious, you mentioned earlier that you're, you're 50 now, you're a long way off from 70, but are we getting to a different sort of moment in the culture where where people really are, like there's an age limit of to, to when people really need to like sort of step it back? Is that- Oh, I, th- I don't think it's, I think it's more that because life expectancy has gone up and because if you- um, at least in this country, if you have economic resources and you take care of yourself, your ability to live a healthy life well into your 80s is is pretty high these yeah. days. Um, that has extended things where you know, normal people used to retire at 65 and that was the end of them. Right? Or there were mandatory retirement ages at 60, 65, right. whatever it was. And it used to be like a thing to retire like in like in your early 50s. Yeah, that was like, like a, a sign of, yeah, right, exactly. Right. So like, I think it's more the product of because there have been these shifts on the healthcare side, it has led to people doing their jobs for longer. And then the question, sometimes it's just unquestionably useful, right? My, my dad, you know, uh, is our CFO. He's 78, I think he turned 79 in, in a week or so. And, um, you know, he's gone great. Um, but he's he also, also not the coach of the New England Patriots. He also loves it, too. He does. Like, he, I mean, it's funny to come into your office and, and talk to Gabe. And, like, it, it, it seems so meaningful to him. You know, to be doing it. Yeah. By the way, I don't think I remember the financial advisor that I had once said to me, like, "Well, when do you plan to retire?" And I said, Never. And it's not because of the goal is to keep accumulating more money. It's like 
this is the a lot of the fulfillment I get from life is the work that I do, and that that ranges from you know legal helping build and legalize a tech company to a conversation that you and I have on the air to mobile voting, right? But um, so but but I think that but then the question becomes, what do you do with people like say Bill Belichick, who he's the greatest coach in the history of football, right? He's won six Super Bowls more than anyone else, played in nine, um, or coach nine. Yeah, I was gonna um, say. And what do you do with a guy who's maybe at the point now where, you know, culturally, he's not as much of a fit, right? Um, you know, you see a lot of teams hiring, in not just, especially in baseball and basketball more, younger guys who retired from playing relatively recently um, who they think work so much better with, with the players that that's more important. So a guy like Belichick, so you could easily see Dallas firing Mike McCarthy today and hiring Belichick, right? That seems like a very Jerry Jones kind of thing to do. And I guess Jerry Jones is 81, so to him, Belichick's a young man. But um, so could Belichick come into Dallas and implement a system and a culture that perhaps can have an impact? Sure. Um, is he going to be able to relate to the players well in the way... Uh, that he once did? No, I don't think so. And I also think that, you know, as we learned with Bill Belichick, I wouldn't say the emperor has no clothes, but, you know, it's a lot easier to be a great coach when the best football player ever, Tom Brady, is your quarterback, right? When, quarter when Brady went away, Belichick became a highly mediocre coach. Yeah, I guess the funny thing is I don't see... I, I don't see that question as being as important as everyone else, like is it Brady or Belichick or whatever. Look, there's any number of things that have to go right, right. to be winning I, saying, six Super Bowls. And sure, there's but, no doubt that Belichick was a huge... But, but if Brady was bought into Belichick, I think from a cultural standpoint, getting the rest of the locker room to buy in oh, is yeah. a lot oh, easier. Oh, right? I, I think that's a very good point. And I think the... But I... But the... the I, I don't. I don't particularly like Bill Belichick just as a human. He, he seems, seems kind of horrible, asshole. right? Yeah. But um. But but I also there's something about him chasing this next thing, whatever it is, that I just I well, wish I just kind of wish right, it but, didn't but happen. But so look, look. I mean, again, we don't. Me, I've never met him. Some of you haven't either. Yeah. So we don't know the man at all. But it seems like there is no life for him outside of football, right? Uh, head coaches in the NFL work, I don't know, 90 hour weeks or something like that. And he's been doing this for, for his whole career. So my guess is to him, retirement and death are sort of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And therefore he wants to fight to prolong what he sees as his life, which means being, you know, staying in the game. Yeah, yep. Um, should we switch to, let's see, what's our next topic? Uh, so I wanted to ask you about Bill Ackman. You were a little resistant just because he's sort of like a whipping boy all over the place, at least from the left. And you're yeah. like, I don't see the point, really. But he's now taken this uh, fight uh, with Harvard in particular, a little bit with the other schools over what he perceived as anti-Semitism, um, is now moved into a whole new sphere. Uh, there's been uh, a, a bunch of investigations into his wife's um, academic credentials and her 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 research methods and and accusing her of plagiarism and other things, he has taken that as a personal attack, and now is uh, promising this kind of huge reform effort aimed at all of higher education. Yeah. Um, so here's what I'm curious about: if you were, if you were just just sitting next to Bill Ackman and speaking privately to him about how he should be. Um, handling himself in these situations, what's the kind of advice you'd give him? Yeah, is he, I, mean, is he, I, I think is what he... he has to just be careful of is, first of all, why are you doing this, right? So my guess is, like everything, there's not one simple answer. So some of it's probably because he does 
did was you know as a Jew was really offended by the blatant anti-Semitism on campuses and wanted to do something about it. Um, some of it is he is a high-profile individual who has a giant ego and likes getting a lot of attention. Like so, we're talking about him right now. Part might be uh, that this you know he has to raise his funds, and and the more and more attention, the more of a celebrity he becomes. Perhaps that makes his fundraising easier. I'm, I'm not sure. You could see that cut cut both ways, but. Um, so why are you doing this? Now, what he'll say to you is, well, I'm just trying to help, right? Because that, what that may what mean— What I do is fix things. I think yeah, you said that. Yeah, like, and that might lines. be true. Or, and I don't know if it's how much self-awareness or not he has, right? The reality is you're doing this probably in part because you're trying to fix something and in a large part because your ego is fucking loving it, right? Um, and so I think it's—you know, you need an end game that's more than just perpetuation of ego— because all you're trying to do is just get attention for the sake of attention and you're chasing it, you will eventually become a pathetic figure. Uh, eventually people will get tired of it and then they just see you tilting it at windmills for the sake of your own desperation and security and need for validation, and then they turn against you. And so I think what he's got to do is make it about the cause that he cares about, make it less about him personally. And if he does that, he'll personally get more attention over a longer period of time because he'll build something sustainable uh, that people can buy into. That's not just about oh, Bill Ackman likes seeing his face. So does TV. this mean he's got to sort of recruit allies and sort of step back from the being the figurehead, or is he's that got to sort of build impossible? sort of an organization a little bit, right? And I think that the organization has to have goals beyond just you know Bill Ackman wanting attention or Bill Ackman attacking Henry Kravis because they business insider attacked Ackman's wife or whatever it is right like that stuff's all fun for like a day or two but it just it comes annoying over a while so yeah he, he's got look he has a lot of money right so he's got to be able willing to use that to personally invest in something that he thinks can deliver actual results right and I think when you're talking about reforming higher ed it's pretty tricky because it is this intangible world to begin with and then reform in and of itself can be a very intangible concept. Right. It's marshmallow, and so, marshmallow. <laughs> you know, if, if I were advising you, I would say, listen, okay, what are the ways that you want to change higher ed? And what are five ways that are super practical and tangible that if these things happened, right. could actually have an impact? Declare victory. Yeah, and, and yeah. Foc we'll focus on those. Right. And if those work, you can keep going. And if not, you could say, I've, I've achieved this. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the trick is, if he wants this to sort of go well for himself long term, he probably needs to make it less about himself. Can I read you? Now we're going to switch topics okay. again. Um, I want to read you a little quote from, uh, uh, what is the quote from? It's it's about David Axelrod, an interview in Politico that was really. But, yeah, but let's do oh, this. Oh, what do you want Did to do? Did you see my text this morning about this? So let's oh, do. Oh, right. Yes, you asked for a different Sopranos, Hitman, oh, right. Axelrod. Simply because the point that I want okay, to okay. make. Oh my God, look at you. You're at, uh, edit in real time. Yeah. Yes, it, that's fine. It fits I, into it's it. so funny. I saw that text and I actually somehow got it confused that you said the opposite, that you wanted the the uh, the Sopranos uh, second after Axelrod. So let's talk about the Sopranos. All now. Right. now, it was the 25th anniversary of the Sopranos. It's funny. Um, I mean, whatever. I guess it's a sign of how old we are. It didn't seem that long ago. I, know, <laughs> um, I, uh, I mean, and, and, but it's also a testament to the show, right? Like you can watch it and I mean, there's a lot, there's, a, there's some anachronistic elements to it, but it also feels very much sort of, I don't know, current, but it's very alive. It doesn't feel like a museum well, piece. I mean, right. Because ultimately what makes it a great show? It's that Tony Soprano is a really complicated character, right? It's a 
terrible human being in every sort of conventional way. And yet he's a really sympathetic figure in many ways, too. Yeah, you root for him. You root for him. Yeah. And, and, you know, David Chase did such a great job making the show that you, you root for a lot of the characters on this show, even though they're sort of ostensibly, you know, really bad people. But what, what Chase got right with his pronos, what David Simon got right with The Wire, is understanding that um, people are not black and white. People are gray. Is There are very few people that are all just bad and evil or all good. Um, and I think, you know, the most effective type of art, um, especially if it's novelistic or, or TV, movies, all of that, that can convey the conflict and that humanity um, is just much better. And the reason why The Sopranos can, can live on um, is simply because, you know, as that indelible nature, you know, piece of human nature has been the case since humans were, were you know, came about till the day that we go extinct. And so that's ultimately what, what makes the show rewatchable. Yep. Um, so I agree with that completely. Now, we had this other, um, you, you'd sent me a, a New York Times piece sort of related about uh, about hitmen yes. and how there's sort of a myth. It's hard to find a good one these days. Hard, yeah. Well, it sounds like it's always been hard, but but yeah. um, what? How does the, how do you, how do you relate that piece to the to the Sopranos and to Axelrod and to, oh no God right. look at you you're giving away all your secrets so yeah. so so that piece was basically like all these shows we watch where the hitman is like well, some super organized yeah. dude who knows exactly what genius he's doing. And yeah and, like and has all these systems and all these guns yeah. I actually did you watch the killer did you watch that thing? yeah I try I probably watched about an hour of it and I just couldn't fucking take it it was so boring. <laughs> I guess that was sort of the point. It was just being very just to like, make you feel miserable. Well, no, but I guess just to like it was a, it was a job. Like he was he was like his job was killing. So I don't know. It was, did you you enjoyed it? I didn't enjoy it. There was something about the coldness of the storytelling that I kind of admired. Okay. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I there there was it it definitely caught my attention. But I also understand what you mean. Like it it had this it 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 was very like kind of technical or something like i felt did. like i was supposed to like it so i watched it when it came out watched half an hour and i was like i can't take it <laughs> then there was you know, people like were raving about it so much i'm like all right let me try again and i got like an hour in and then i was like fuck this okay let's go straight from like hitmen or a, a fiction of our so but, but but the point of the article was hitmen don't really exist in the way that they do in, in popular lore, right right and that ultimately the people who do this for a living are highly dysfunctional criminals who get caught constantly. <laughs> right, um, even before they Usually pull it before off. it yeah, even yeah. happens, right. right? And so I was thinking about, like, what are the other types of fictions that, you know, exist in oh. movies, oh, right. That's but not point. in reality? I see where you're going with so, this. So, um, you know, the super secret spy who's also an action hero, right? Like, that person doesn't really exist. You know, the 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 con, in the con man genre of movies and TV and books, like the mastermind yeah, who sort of a step fools ahead, everybody, fools right. everyone yeah, yeah, yeah. all the time. That person doesn't exist. And then ultimately what doesn't exist, and this gets us to, to Axelrod, it is whenever there's a portrayal of someone as all good or all bad, right? Like those don't exist in reality because people are not all good or all bad. People are complex. People are gray. Um, and yet still you see all the time, and maybe this is bad art, but art that is you know, has its its protagonist being, you know, or or its antagonist, you know, just being completely one sided human beings and their caricatures, they're 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 not characters, right? Not interesting characters. Um, and I think that to me is the you know, I don't mind the fictional trope of the hitman or con man mastermind or action hero spy, because it's fun, 
right? Um, what I do mind is this notion of, you know, uh, everyone is is good or bad. So get your point on Axelrod, and then I'm going to actually tie it all around. Okay, well, it's funny, because I thought you were going to say that that part, one, another of these mythic figures was the political consultant who knows everything and controls everything. I no. thought that's what you were going to say. No. I, because that's another character type that doesn't yeah, really exist, I, right? Yeah, I think that's right. You've, you've said that before, anyway. Yeah, that the idea I mean, that, we're like, not fucking that smart, you know. <laughs> so I guess, so th this, I'm going to read you the quotes from Axelrod, and what he's responding to is that Biden, reportedly in private, has referred to David Axelrod is a prick yeah and the reason he calls him a prick is because axelrod's been on his podcast and elsewhere and cnn and wherever else he appears like being very critical of the sure. biden re-election campaign and talking about how they're screwing it up so so they ask him like what do you think about being called a prick by the president he goes i don't blame him he's frustrated and probably thought it was unhelpful someone who you know but i won't say who sent me a box of buttons that said pricks for biden so i guess i'm the chair of that I'm at a stage in my life where I don't really give a shit. I'm 68. You know, everybody in Washington sort of thinks that the most important thing is that the president likes you and that you get invited to parties and shit like that. Well, I've been to plenty of parties. I worked in the White House. That's not the thing. I certainly didn't say what I said to be injurious to Joe Biden. Sometimes the most injurious thing is to say nothing at all. Anyway, I thought that was a great yeah, quote. By the way, great yeah. quote. Yeah. And, and his underlying point, as I have followed this a little bit, and I don't listen to his podcast, but is... He made the point that that someone younger might end up be having a better chance of beating Trump than Biden, right? right? And that the polling very well shows that, right? So I don't think what Biden said is wrong. And by the way, he's not a paid consultant to the Democratic Party or to the president. And arguably, if people are in one way or another spending their time and money to be able to listen to his opinion and point of view, he's doing what he should do, which is give his honest opinion, regardless of who it makes upset or not, just like we try to do on, on this podcast, right? So... Um, so I, I think Axe's quote was right, and I think that his approach to this has been totally right. Um, I think where uh, I take a little issue is, I, you know, maybe he's evolved a bit because I, I knew when I was in Chicago, um, he wasn't involved with Blagojevich, which he loved to tell everyone. Um, but he did like to he give, just it was involved in the other scumbags in Illinois. But he he did like to um, to occasionally give me advice. And, you know, I, smart, right? Now, like you said, there's no such thing as the true mastermind political consultant. It's just another point of view, right? It, that's all it is. But, but you know, we had a pretty good relationship. Um, then in 2008, uh, they're just in the middle of the campaign. Um, they thought they wanted to make, like, another high-level hire. And Anita Dunn, who's actually now one of Biden's very, very top people in the White House, uh, was someone that I knew. And she said, hey, why don't you come in and, and meet with us? Um, maybe you should join the campaign. I was like, oh, that, that sounds kind of interesting. Why don't I do that? Um, and But I said to her, listen, you know, I worked for Blagojevich. I haven't done anything wrong. He hasn't even at that, at that point even been indicted for anything, arrested or accused of anything. But there's been a lot of smoke around this. Other people around him have been indicted and, and, and prosecuted. I, I think the optics may be tricky here. She said, no, no, don't worry about it. We don't care. We just want the best people we can get. So I go to Chicago and I meet with Anita and I meet with all these different people, uh, not Obama, but everyone else kind of around the campaign. I said, well, you got to meet with David. Okay, and I know David, fine. Um, so he makes me wait for three days. So I'm just literally sitting in my hotel room in Chicago waiting for a call or an email saying he'll be, he'll see you now, right? Um, <laughs> fine. But he's busy. He's running a historic campaign. He did a brilliant job. Great. So I go to his office to see him. And he says, basically, look, I, you know, I know who you are. You're smart. You're this, you're that. Like, you don't have to prove that to me. But my problem with you is, you know, maybe you didn't do anything 
illegal, but you were, he said, over his words, he said, you were sitting in the front playing, playing the piano and whistling Dixie while, while they were in the back dealing cards. And what really frustrated me was two things. That's one, a pretty serious charge. Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah. One is I already, you know, knew what I had done in real life, which was the one time that Blagojevich asked me something illegal. I said no and reported him. Right? right. So like I did the exact fucking opposite of that. Right. But then two, the guy who got him, Tony Resco, was the guy who at that point had been uh, indicted. And Axelrod was talking specifically about Tony and how like he's a you know stain. Obama took a few, if you remember this from the 2008 campaign, Obama got a free house from Tony Resco. Obama bought a house in Hyde Park, didn't have as much money to buy as much property as he wanted. Tony bought the land next door and basically gave it to him. Um, and Obama never got arrested or indicted for it because there wasn't a quo. There was a quid, but without a without a quo. Um, and, and I think the, the point really is that uh, I mean, Axelrod's sort of big flaw to me. It's not even that he's a prick. He's just a wildly self-righteous human being. And, you know, everyone has bad qualities, and, and that's one of his. That's fine. Um, but that he painted Obama in this light of the Messiah and perfect and Jesus, when Obama also is a human being who has good qualities and bad qualities. And, by the way, has engaged in a little bit of—I don't think he's wildly corrupt, but is he, engaged, is he a Chicago Paul who's had his share of his hand in the till? Yeah. <laughs> You know what? And Axelrod built this image that on one hand was very effective in getting Obama elected in 08, and that was his job, but also in many ways, almost from the start, guaranteed that Obama would be a disappointment, which I think ultimately people think he was, um, because he could never live up to the to the hype that Axelrod created. He could never live up to the myth that Axelrod created. He was a human being, and like there were things he was very good at in as as president, and there were things like, you know, getting the legislature to do what you want that he was very bad at, right? Yep. And that's okay. Like, people have, have strengths and weaknesses. But it was funny when we were tying this all around that in some ways what made The Sopranos great was that the people were not black and white. They were gray. Um, what makes, you know, the art uh, bad oftentimes is when, you know, people are portrayed in TV or books or movies as, you know, perfect or terrible or, and, and not human beings. And then when you asked me at Axelrod, I was like, you know what? That's exactly what he fucking did too. And like, yes, it was injurious to me. Not because I even thought like that I should get the job because I also felt like the connection of Blagojevich and Chicago was sort of too close for comfort and why take the risk? I just resented being yeah. uh, accused of that. And then, you know, he did not ever correct the record when I then testified publicly to what happened where it was very clear um, and then had the temerity to have someone ask me for money when he was raising money for the uh, his Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, which I promptly told him to go fuck themselves. But um, All very interesting, Bradley. I so, didn't realize you were going to say all this about Axelrod. I would have put it at the top of the um, at the top of the podcast. Is, good, good, so that's some pretty good stuff. All right. Um, let's let's just close with your recommendations for this week. Yeah, we yeah. I got a couple. Things, but, yeah, go um, and what do you got? more than you want. So okay. um, I picked uh, one in four different ca four categories. Okay, go ahead. First is a podcast called The Set. Violating I, the rules again, I want you to know that we're only supposed to pick one. Okay. Yeah. You got four. Go ahead. So I think I maybe sent this to you, the set. It's about... You did. You did. Right. So it's about the, the three of the 30th precinct in New York City, which is in Morningside Heights, which is uh, kind of where Columbia University, Harlem is. And it was about... It was like one of the most corrupt precincts in the history of policing mm -hmm. ever. And they, I mean, stuff that was... The Dirty big, 30. Yeah, the Dirty 30. And and the Mullen Commission was this commission that David Dinkins, who was the mayor, created to sort of investigate police corruption 
And it's a podcast about the Dirty 30, about the Mullen Commission, but it just does such a good job of like getting into the weeds of it and taking you onto the streets and onto the beat. And at the same time, behind the scenes at City Hall or One Police Plaza at Morgan Thau's office and the U.S. Attorney's office, that um, it was just a great podcast. Kick ass. 100% Did you to it? Yeah, because of your recommendation. Yeah. And I thought it was great. Um, the movie Iron Claw. Um, Not seen that yet. I but think you would really like it. Yeah, I, I think like, I would I too. feel like that you have an affinity for wrestling. That's uh, I don't know what you mean by that, but um, I'm not sure either. But do you? <laughs> no, not really. Okay, <laughs> um, it's uh, an incredibly sad movie. I guess it's a sports movie. It is a sports movie, um, but it's just a family portrait that's incredibly sad. But I, I thought it was a, a people say it's a pow- powerful yep. movie. Um, a TV show on Netflix called The Brother Son. Have you seen this? I have not. So this is the opposite, and this is just an action show. Oh yeah, I think you mentioned this already. This is about a. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a, a guy from dumb t- action show. A dumb action show that kind of takes place first in Taiwan and then in LA. Um, but turns out, a it's not that dumb. It kind of gets more serious and meaningful over time. Okay, and b a lot of fun. And then fourth is a book by a guy named Brian Washington called Family Meal, and it's about uh, he writes about Houston, and typically his characters are gay. I don't know where I started. I'd read I'd read his short stories and thought they were very good. Then I downloaded this book because I was like, oh, it's you know, really highly reviewed. I should check it out. And then I didn't read it for a long time because I was like, I don't want to read another book about identity politics and someone just beating me over the head with you know whatever else. And the truth is, you know, while his, well, it was characters who were gay, um, it wasn't a book really about identity politics. It was just a book about people and their struggles and their relationships. And, and he's just a fantastic fucking writer. And so it was It was a great book. I'm glad I finally read it. Those sound like four great ones, Bradley. Um, I'll see you next week. See you next week. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.